So we're back in this theme of prayer. So in the morning times, we're looking at practically what it looks like to pray or how you can pray or tips that help you or aid you in prayer. And then in the evening time, we look at something that is to do with revival. So a couple of weeks ago when I was preaching, it was revival in Egypt based on Exodus chapter 4. Tonight, I'm in 1 Samuel chapter 7, and it's revival or repentance or a turning of hearts in chapter 7 of 1 Samuel. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it. If not, it'll be in the screen behind me. So I'm going to read from verse 3 to verse 13, then I'll pray, then we'll unpack this great passage together. So 1 Samuel chapter 7. Then Samuel said to all the people of Israel, if you want to return to the Lord your God with all your heart, then get rid of your foreign gods and your images of Asheroth. Turn your hearts to the Lord and obey him alone. Then he will rescue you from the Philistines. So the Israelites got rid of their images of Baal and Asheroth and worshipped only the Lord. Then Samuel told them, gather all of Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and in a great ceremony, drew water from a well and poured it out before the Lord. They also went without food all day and confessed that they had sinned against the Lord. It was at Mizpah that Samuel became Israel's judge. When the Philistine rulers heard that Israel had gathered at Mizpah, they mobilized their army and advanced. The Israelites were badly frightened when they learned that the Philistines were approaching. Don't stop pleading with the Lord, our God, to save us from the Philistines. They begged Samuel. So Samuel took a young lamb and offered it to the Lord as a whole burnt offering. He pleaded with the Lord to help Israel, and the Lord answered him. Verse 10, just as Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines arrived to attack Israel. But the Lord spoke with a mighty voice of thunder from heaven that day, and the Philistines were thrown into such confusion that the Israelites defeated them. Then the men of Israel chased them from Mizpah to a place below Bethkar, slaughtering them all along the way. Samuel then took a large stone and placed it between the towns of Mizpah and Jethana and named it Ebenezer, which means the stone of help or God is our help. For he said, up until this point, the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and didn't fail Israel for some time. And throughout Samuel's lifetime, the Lord's powerful hand was raised against their enemies. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father God, by your spirit, will you speak? I pray, God, for just a defined sense of still and seriousness and awe, and reverence, and excitement, and anticipation as we come before you and open up your word. These are not random stories that we look at on Sunday mornings or Sunday nights. This is your word, and this is the word that you want us to hear tonight. So in this place tonight, I pray, starting in my heart and forward, will you convict and will you change and will you revive and will you renew and will you restore and will you rekindle 
And will you save? We ask these things for your name and for your glory. And everyone said, amen. So if I was going to preach this, which I am going to preach this, if I was going to preach this and chop it into four parts, this is what I would do. These are the four headings. If you're going to take notes tonight, these are the four headings I would use. There's the call to repentance. There's the act of repentance. There's the attack from repenting. And there is the power from repenting. Okay, but here's the thing. We've just landed in 1 Samuel chapter 7. We weren't in chapter 6 last week. We'll not be in chapter 8 next week. We just land in the middle of this text. And it's always a bit like interrupting someone's telephone conversation. I always think, just doing this. You kind of miss out a little bit of the context work or the history work before that. So before we get to chapter 7, we have to do a little bit of history work, if that's okay with you. So 1 Samuel is a book that was written about 3,000 years ago. It comes off the back of another Old Testament book called Judges. And Judges is zooming in on the nation of Israel or God's people. And it zooms in on the leadership. So the judges were like tribal leaders. It zooms in on what type of leadership they offered to the people. And also it zooms in on the behavior of the people. So we're looking at leadership and we're looking at behavior. And if you were to open up the book of Judges, you soon discover that God's people were not acting or behaving like God's people. They are very far from God. Not because God is far, but because their hearts are corrupt and evil and sinful, and they are far from God. They don't behave, they don't act, they don't sound, they don't look like God's people. In fact, if you open up chapter 2 and verse 11, we read this. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And that, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, is a repeated theme, a, a repeated statement that works all the way through the book. And as you work your way through the book and come to the end of the book, things get worse and worse and worse and more evil and more evil and more evil and more corrupt and more corrupt and more corrupt until you come to chapter 21 and verse 25 and we end our story like this. In those days, Israel had no king. And everyone, everyone did as they so fit. And that's how the book ends. So as we come to 1 Samuel, we are living in the aftermath of that period. We're living in the aftermath of those dark days, and this is one of Israel's darkest periods in history. It represents about 200 years of oppression, or 200 years of chaos, or evil, or corruption. 200 years of anarchy. 200 years of an absolute spiritual mess in this nation. There is no godly example. There is no godly leader. There is no good story at the end of this book. So as we turn our page into 1 Samuel, our hope is that things will change. Our hope is that someone good will arise out of the story. A hero will come and will put an end to all that evil, will put an end to all that corruption, and will change things. 1 Samuel, or camera, zooms in on this little unknown family. We know nothing about them. They make this little cameo appearance in chapter 1, write a song in chapter 2. But after that, we don't hear anything of that family. You've got a nation that are in crisis, but you also are introduced to this family, and they are also in crisis. You have Hannah, who can't have children. 
And that's the way this story starts. And that's disappointing. And it's painful to start a story that way. Because after 200 years, and after changing from one book into another book, I was hoping for a glimmer of hope. I hope that someone would come along and would save the day. But it doesn't seem to be that way. And it doesn't seem like any hope is going to come from this family, this lady who cannot have children. And it's really easy to skip over that first couple of chapters and go digging for who is the hero in the story. But here's the thing. It is after those 200 years, during those 200 years, that we read this little story, or this little line in chapter one. It says this, Hannah poured out her heart to God. I love that. Hannah poured out her heart to God. So here we are in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the oppression, in the midst of this 200 years of chaos and spiritual ruin, and it is the cry, the passionate, heartfelt cry of a woman that prays into the darkness. And she prays for a son, and she asks for a son who would come and who would be raised up as a godly example, someone who would change the spiritual climate of this nation. Enter baby Samuel. So Samuel comes along and Samuel gets raised in a temple. And you would expect being raised in a temple is a high point for someone's life. You would think that's a great mentorship to have Eli, who is the priest, to have him as your mentor. Surely that's great. Surely to be raised in the temple and to have all that access to all those theological books and resources and aids, surely that would be a great start to this young boy's life. Except we read this in chapter 2, verse 12. Eli, who is, a son, who is the priest, had two sons. And it says this of his sons. They were scoundrels. That's not good. That's not good. That's not a good description. If you're described as a scoundrel, that is not good. It's not a proud moment. So here we have the apprentices to the priest described as scoundrels. Maybe the priest is a little bit better. Well, we read later on in that same chapter, chapter 2, verse 22. Eli was very old, but he was aware of what his sons were doing. He knew, for instance, that his sons were seducing the young woman who assisted at the temple of the tabernacle, and he did nothing about it. Blind physically, but also blind, or wanting to be blind to what his sons were doing. Isn't that utterly tragic? Utterly tragic that there is no safe place for this nation. Utterly tragic that there is no holy, safe sanctuary for anyone. The world is corrupt outside the church, but it seems that it's equally as rotten and corrupt inside the church. And what a tragedy that is when people are abused or mistreated or manipulated within church. How tragic this story is. So we start to feel some of the weight of what is going on in this period of history. We start to see why this period of history is so dark. Because the culture is corrupt, but the church is corrupt as well. Contrast all of that with Samuel chapter 3. One night, Eli, who was almost blind by now, had gone to bed. 
Verse 3 says, The lamp of God had not yet gone out. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. Remember that. And Samuel was sleeping. He's probably 14 years old by now. Samuel was sleeping in the temple near the ark of God. And suddenly, God called out to Samuel. A couple of things to notice about this little verse. Eli is almost blind. Sight fading. Light in his eyes fading. And that contrasts or represents the spirit or the, the nation of Israel who are also blind spiritually. They're also in darkness spiritually. But notice, there's still a light. There's still a glimmer of hope in the midst of that. And it says, God's light has not gone out. There's always hope with God. No matter how dark it gets, no matter how pitch black it gets, there's always a glimmer of hope with God. And here it is here. Notice that Samuel, notice where he is. He's next to the Ark of the Covenant. He's next to a piece of furniture in the tabernacle. And then I may not feel like it's a significant detail to you or me now until you realize that the Ark of the Covenant symbolized the very presence of God, the favor of God. So here's Samuel, and he is right next to the presence of God. And as he's right next to the presence of God, that intimacy with God, God speaks into his life. There's your glimmer of hope again in Samuel. And you would expect, as you turn the page from chapter 4 of 1 Samuel into chapter, or chapter 3 into chapter 4, that it's a better story. But it's not. In chapter 4, we read that the Israelites are at war with an enemy. They're getting defeated. They'd gone into the battle without God, without consulting God. They thought they were strong enough and powerful enough to do this without God in their life. But whenever things go bad, whenever things go wrong, they decide, let's go get the Ark of the Covenant, bring the Ark of the Covenant into the battle, and surely if the presence of God is here, then God will save us from this battle. And this sounds like a fair point, sounds like a good suggestion, except their motives are all wrong. They want to use God. They want to manipulate God just for their own gain and for their own reputation. And here's how chapter 4 ends. Verse 22, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been taken away. First time ever in the history of Israel and the ark has been taken away. And that is that first, the glory of God departs. It is that first that sums up our story. I've given us a lot of context work because we have to get that context work. We have to see how dark things are in this passage before we get to see the light that comes in chapter 7. This is, make no mistake about it, this is a dark, dark, dark time in the nation of Israel. The priests treat God with contempt. The people treat God with contempt. And God walks away. He says, this is all empty. Your worship is all empty. It's just a veneer. It is heartless, meaningless, passionless worship. And God departs. And if we come to chapter 7 and we're to read verse 2, we realize that the Ark of the Covenant has been neglected for a long time, it says, in verse 2. In fact, it says 20 years. God's presence departs, and for 20 years, no one can be bothered to go after that, to pursue that, to pray for that, to long for that, to desire that, to want that to return. 
They're in crisis, and it would seem that no one cares until chapter 7, verse 3, and it says this, then who? Samuel. We kind of forgot about Samuel, hadn't we? And all the dark of that story, we kind of forgot about Samuel. Where's Samuel been for the last 20 years? So much hope in chapters 1, 2, and 3, but then he just disappears, and we don't read about him until now in chapter 7. Here's what Dale Ralph Davis says, and I love this. God was at work providing for new godly leadership of his people. There were no slogans, no campaigns, no speeches. It is all very quiet. Growth seldom makes a noise, and Yahweh is growing his new leader. And in the middle of this text, it will keep whispering, don't forget Samuel. Don't forget there's a glimmer of hope. Don't forget God's chosen person. So here we are in chapter 7, and it is Samuel who calls the nation to repent. And notice that everyone in chapter 7, the entire nation, probably somewhere between 1.5 and 3 million people, everyone gathers together for one big massive service together. And in that meeting, Samuel stands forward and he calls everyone to repent. Verse 3 says this, if you want to return to the Lord with all your heart, get rid of Get rid of your foreign gods and your images or your idols. Turn your heart to the Lord and obey him alone and he will rescue you from your enemy. As I read that, I thought it sounds an awful lot like Joshua. Joshua makes a call to the people in chapter 24, and that's probably about 200 to 400 years earlier. And he assembles the entire nation exactly the same, and he says this, So fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away forever your idols, your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today who you will serve. Would Would you prefer the gods of your ancestors or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whom land you live now? But as for me, the famous... Verse, as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Or Joshua 24 and 1 Samuel 7 sounds an awful lot like Elijah, probably 1,000 to 2,000 years after 1 Samuel. Chapter 18, it says this, how much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is your God, follow him. But if it is Baal is God, then follow him. Francis Chan has this phrase. There's an epidemic of spiritual amnesia going around and none of us are immune. We are forgetful people. There's three instances. That's only three. There's loads more in the Old Testament. Three times, three different generations where someone stands forward and calls a nation to repent. Why is that? Because they're forgetful people. We are forgetful people. We are tempted to fall in love with other things. We are tempted to get distracted with other things. God counterfeits or God replacements. And sometimes it takes a Joshua or it takes a Samuel or it takes an Elijah to call a people to repent and to turn away from their sins and to follow God. 
you want to return to the Lord with all your heart, then get rid of your counterfeit gods. Get rid of your God replacements. Turn your hearts to the Lord and obey him alone. There's four things we're to do. We're to return. We are to rid. We are to repent. And we are to respond. Return, rid, repent, respond. Return to God. Return to God. Come home to God. I don't know where any of you are spiritually. But if you are nowhere with God tonight, then I urge you, I plead with you, I beg you, I implore you to come home to God tonight. Return to him. Stop delaying. Stop running. Stop excuses. Get rid of your sins. Get rid of your evil. Get rid of your idols. Get rid of those things that are not pleasing to God. Ask Holy Spirit to examine your heart and to bring them to light and get rid of them. Get rid of them out of your life. Get rid of them out of your homes. Repent. Repent means to turn away from Repent from those evil things. Repent from those sins. Repent from whatever it is that you need to repent of. Hit the kill switch. Do not resuscitate as passionately as you went after them. And we all go after sin. Like we all, I have in my past, gone after sin so passionately, infested, willing to give up everything for this moment or this season of pleasure as passionately as you go after sin, be as passionate about destroying or killing or removing sin from your life. I used this before. There is an old Puritan saying that goes like this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Greg Laurie has this quote and it says, there's a difference between remorse and repentance. Remorse is being sorry for being caught. Repentance is being sorry enough to stop. Repentance is being sorry enough to stop. All I want to say before we move on to the next point is sin is not your friend. Sin is not your friend. I could take you to countless homes, countless lives, countless people, and sin has either destroyed or is destroying their lives. Sin is not your friend. So the people are called to repent. And the second thing we see is that the people actually repent. Sounds so simple, sounds so easy. They are called to repent and they repent. And notice that again, it is everyone who is gathered together. They don't have a foot on it. They don't decide when to have the repentance Sunday service. They repent. They don't decide, well, let's have one last big blowout before we repent. They do it immediately. They are called and they act immediately. When we repent, there's a personal dimension to that, but I also think there's a corporate dimension. That, this whole chapter is about corporate confession or co- corporate repentance. And I think there's something really powerful when churches unite and come together with like-minded hearts or desires. I think there's something significant when the church confesses sin or repents of sin. And whenever we're talking about corporate repentance, we're not saying name and shame people. So we're not bringing people to the front and saying, well, here's a list of their sins and there's a list of their sins. It is reminding us all as a church that we are all flawed people. We are all broken people. We are all people in need of God's grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and second chance and third chance and Infinity chance. We are all in the same boat. We are all a work in progress until the day we die. 
I love that there's hope in this passage. I love that there's revival in this passage. I love that there's a turning of hearts in this passage. And don't underestimate the significance or the difficulty of that. Remember, this is a nation that are in utter darkness. So, so far from God, spiritually speaking, culturally speaking, and religious speaking, religiously speaking, they are so far from God. But if God can come to this nation and save this nation, then isn't there hope for our nation today? Isn't there hope for our city? Isn't there hope for our province? Isn't there hope for our island? Isn't there hope for our world? If God can come and save this nation, there's still hope today. That's why we keep pressing in and pressing in and pressing in and asking God to save. It's why I love 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, says God, and I will forgive their sins and heal their land. Beautiful, beautiful hope. And that would be a great place to end the sermon. And you're excited because you're going, yes, that will be a great place to end the sermon tonight. But it would, it would be. It would be great to end on this high but you notice what happens next in the passage? So you have this nation that returned to God. They repent before God. They reset their priorities before God. They have this massive worship service. We should end at that point. But notice what happens next. The enemy attack. I didn't expect that. I didn't think that was coming in this passage. I expected uninterrupted 24-7 worship in this setting. I expect it 2450 prayer in this setting. I expect that worship rooms to be blasting the tunes of worship in this place. I didn't expect the enemy to be coming, but that's exactly what happens. The enemy spot an opportunity. They see this group of gathered people together and they come to mount a surprise attack. They want to destroy, they want to win, they want to defy, they want to undo, they want to stop everything that God is doing, and that is what the enemy wants to do. Can you imagine the setting? You imagine being in 1 Samuel chapter 7, and everything was going so well, but then off in the distance, you see this dust cloud rising, and it gets closer, and it gets closer, and it gets closer, and it gets closer, and then what you start to see is chariots raging towards God's people, packed with warriors, raging towards God's people, wanting only to destroy the enemies coming. Worship turns to worry. Praise turns to panic. Faith turns to fear. And all of a sudden, in the eyes of the people, God starts to shrink. You ever been there before where the enemy comes and God starts to shrink and that problem, that enemy starts to grow and expand? Sometimes in our moments of greatest victory, in our moments of greatest intimacy, in our moments of best spiritual performance, that is when the enemy mounts its greatest attack. That's when we face our greatest danger and our greatest threat because the enemy, Satan, demons, powers, and principalities are raging against what we do in this place. Make no mistake about it. Like, do, you think, do you think the enemy love our 7 p.m. service? 
you think they're okay just to let us do our 24-7 worship on Friday or our 24-50 prayer? No. The enemy wants to destroy everything good that happens in this place. What do we do in those moments? What do you do in those moments when the enemy comes to attack? We do. The people do in chapter 7. See what they do in verse 7? Or in chapter 7? Notice what they do. They stand still. They are paralyzed with fear. They realize their weakness. They realize that they have no resources. They realize they have no ability. They've been caught off guard. They're in a worship service and the enemy are coming, raging towards them. How are they going to fight the battle? They throw hymnals at them? What are they going to do? They're caught off guard. It's okay to be paralyzed with fear. It's okay to feel weak. It's okay to feel helpless. It's okay to feel, I don't know what to do when the enemy comes. It's okay to feel surrounded as long as you do what the people do in verse 8. What do they do in verse 8? They plead with, they beg Samuel, don't stop praying, Samuel. Don't stop pleading for God to save us. See, Samuel is their mediator. Samuel is their intercessor. Samuel is their link between the people and God, and that is where they will find their strength. That is where they will find their resources. That is where they will find the one who will fight the battle for them. That is where they find their rescuer. And here we have Samuel, who is filled with the presence of God, and as the enemy comes, he leans into the presence of God in prayer. As the enemy get closer and closer, Samuel's prayers get louder and louder louder and more audacious. As the enemy rage, notice what God does in verse 10. The Lord spoke with a mighty voice of thunder from heaven that day and the enemy were thrown into such confusion that the Israelites defeated him. them. Do you see what's happening in this passage? The enemy rages, but our God from heaven roars. The enemy rage, our God roars. The enemy rage, our God roars from heaven in his might and his strength and his power and in his presence no enemy can ever stand. There is power from repenting. There's power from repenting. Through repentance, through trusting in God, through Samuel interceding on their behalf, they get the victory. Notice what Samuel does in verse 12. He takes a large stone. He named it Ebenezer, which means the stone of help. For God is help. There's an old song that I don't know whether you know or remember. I was at the 530 and they knew this song. But you might not know this. It goes like this. I raise an Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I'm come. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, God, to rescue me from danger, interpose his precious blood. We will face battles. I wish that wasn't the case, but we will face battles. It may feel like we are surrounded, but we are surrounded by God. 
It is God who will fight our battles. It is Jesus who is our hope. And at the name of Jesus, demons run and flee. At the very mention of his name, strongholds are broken. Lives are transformed. Communities are transformed. People are transformed. At the mention of his name, heaven touches earth. Maybe tonight you're like, I am still too weak. I see the enemy, I feel the enemy, I sense the enemy, and I am still too weak to stand, Mark. That is okay. That is okay. That is okay. And the reason I say that is because we need a Samuel. We need a Samuel. We need when the going gets tough, we need to be able to call on a Samuel. But here's it we don't have a Samuel. This is 3,000 years ago. Samuel's not there anymore. But we don't need a Samuel because we have a Jesus and that is our hope. So if you feel weak, you feel you can't carry on, listen to this, Romans 8, 34. Who then will condemn us? No one. No one, for Christ Jesus died for our sins and was raised to life and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand. Get this, pleading, praying for you. Who will condemn you? The voice in your head, what you say about yourself, what he says about you, what she says about you, what's condemning you, them, they, who, the past, the present, what's condemning you? Because Jesus says nothing can condemn you because he is power over all things. You can't stay up tonight to pray, that's okay. Jesus will stay up all night to pray for you. You feel so weak that you can't pray, that's okay because Jesus will pray for you. He'll pray 24-50. He'll pray for the rest of your life for you. And that is our hope. That is our hope as we step into our battles. That is the hope as we step into the darkness. Who will condemn you? No one. Say it back to me. Who will condemn you? No one. Who will condemn you? Say it like you mean it. Who will condemn you? Who will condemn you? Jesus has the victory. Jesus has the victory. Someone give Jesus a hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's stand. Let's worship God.